Welcome to the UAEM podcast. I'm your host, Clara. Today, I'm excited to welcome the one and only Dr. Stacey Dusatsina, a professor in the Department of Health Policy, as well as a professor of cancer research at Vanderbilt. Dr. Dusatsina's work primarily focuses on measuring and evaluating population level use and the costs of medications in the US, specifically looking at the role of drug costs on patient access to care, as well as policy changes that may improve patient access to high-priced drugs. Dr. Dusatsina has been recognized for her work at the national level, and she is widely known as a, if not the leading expert in drug pricing. I'm so pleased and honored to have her chat with me today about the complexity and nuances of drug pricing in a hopefully digestible conversation for our listeners. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Dusatsina. Thanks so much. I'm really excited to be here. We're really excited to have you. First of all, thank you again so much for taking the time to be here today. To begin, could you uh, talk a little bit about how you got interested in or what has led you to study drug pricing? Sure. Um, probably like many people, um, some of it is an accident <laughs> um, where when I got out of undergrad, you know, I needed my first job and I had a background in psychology and economics. And I had a friend who was working in the pharmaceutical industry in a contract research organization and thought, well, that sounds like an interesting job, like sounds like some cool work to do. And I got my start in the pharmaceutical industry working in first in the research side, um, helping with clinical trials and then moved into project management. But during that process, I really learned a lot about how drugs were developed. I was part of several new drug applications that were going to the FDA. I you know, got to see intimately how drugs work their way through the system, how risky it is, how hard it is, how many people are working on them. So it really drove my interest in this space. But then I started to realize I wanted to do more and I wanted to be the person asking the research questions rather than working on the team and decided to go back to grad school to get a degree in pharmaceutical science. When I entered grad school, I, you know, I started to realize like there were all kinds of problems in the system that made it hard for people to get access to their treatments. Some problems in particular with equity issues and how much money it costs to develop treatments and how much money it costs that some patients can't access drugs that they need. So became really interested in that component of um, the issue and then sort of evolved from there. You know, I found early on in my career, I started looking at people not being able to afford cancer drugs, even ones that save your life. You know, you take them and you live a normal lifespan. And if you don't, you die. And we were finding that people, even with relatively low out-of-pocket costs, would stop taking their treatments. And we, we thought this was a huge problem and there's no shortage of problems. <laughs> so it's like we keep finding more and more things to study and hopefully are making some recommendations for improving policies so that, you know, in the future, if people need cancer treatments, they can get them. Mm-hmm. So when people talk about high-priced drugs or just um, prescription drugs in general, people talk about Medicare Part D, but I'm sure it's pretty confusing, the ABCD of Medicare. So I was wondering if you could explain uh, what exactly Medicare Part D is and who and what does it cover? Sure. Yeah. So 
Medicare Part D is the prescription drug benefit. So just really quickly, A is for hospitalization. B is for medical care, like going to your doctor's office. C is actually Medicare Advantage, which is a private health plan run version of Medicare. And then D is the drug benefit. So it's a little bit out of whack where people are like, well, what's C? Because most people who have A and B don't have C. They have A, B, D. Anyway, it's confusing. It's confusing yeah. to everyone. <laughs> but Medicare Part D is the prescription drug benefit that we all typically think of. Like if you're going to go to a pharmacy and fill a medication, that's the card you would use is your Part D plan. And it came around in 2006. That's when it started. They passed in a law in 2003. And for seniors before 2006, they really didn't have a reliable source of prescription drug coverage. So Medicare Part D gave them an opportunity to get covered for prescription drugs and is very popular with seniors. And it's kind of like mind boggling that before 2006, which isn't that long ago, like there just wasn't really an option. Like some people had coverage for drugs under their employer sponsored retiree benefits or their pensions, but a lot of people just went without drug coverage. So you can kind of get a sense of like, you know, that sounds totally crazy today because like people use so many medications, we wouldn't expect them to not be covered by health plans. But, you know, I think that it also kind of shows us how quickly our medical care has shifted from going to the doctor to getting a medication. Like, that's kind of now synonymous with going to the doctor. It's almost everything is treated with a medication these days. But Part D is um, very popular for most people. Like it covers most older adults' drugs just fine. But there are some really, really big problems with it when we look at the coverage for expensive drugs. So if you need something that is high priced, the benefit and its design doesn't really work very well to support access to those drugs. I think also um, when the government talks about spending, like government spending on prescription drugs, they also talk about Medicare Part D a lot. How much would you say that they spend on it despite it not being able to cover a lot of high-priced drugs? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know if I have the number off the top of my head for how much Medicare, the government pays for Medicare Part D. The one thing that is kind of interesting is the government actually pays for a large percentage of all the drugs. So Medicare Part D, the other thing that's kind of unique about it is it's run by private health plans, but they're kind of also financed by the federal government. So the government pays for Medicare Part D through these upfront payments to health plans and through what they call reinsurance. So it's, I wish I could draw you a picture, that'd probably be the easiest, but if you Google the Medicare Part D benefit, you can kind of see like how crazy it is. Like you have all these different phases. So there's like a deductible, which is what the patient pays before any other payer kicks in. So that is now $445 in 2021. Then you go into this initial coverage phase. So in that phase, the beneficiary pays 25% and the health plan, let's say CVS or health or Aetna, they pick up 75%. Mm -hmm. 
Once you reach the next phase, the coverage gap, the patient still pays 25%. That was part of the Affordable Care Act to improve the benefit. They used to have to pay 100%, which was just like, how do you do that? You go from paying only like 25% to 100%. It was a bad policy. Mm -hmm. That got fixed. But now, like in the coverage gap, the patient pays 25%, the drug company pays 70%, and the health plan pays 5%. You're like, what is happening? Like, so now suddenly the health plan pays barely anything. Mm -hmm. And then you go into the catastrophic phase once you've spent like a lot. Now, this is why, this is what happens when you have really expensive drugs. You almost automatically get to the catastrophic phase. The patient pays 5%. The health plan starts paying again. They pay 15% and Medicare pays 80%. So by doing that, Medicare basically shoulders a huge amount of the spending for these high spenders. So like if you have a cancer drug that costs like $10,000 per fill, then you almost immediately go into the catastrophic phase of the benefit, which means that almost every single fill, Medicare and taxpayers are picking up 80% of that bill. So it's a, it's a very large expense for the government, but part of it is that, you know, like you could look at the benefit and think, well, today we're asking taxpayers and the patient to pay a lot. We're not really asking the manufacturers to pay a lot when we look at these high spending drugs. And maybe we could ask health plans to pitch in more as well. So it's not necessarily that Medicare needs to pick up that difference and make the benefit better for patients, but maybe like we could ask health plans and manufacturers to also do a little bit more. So So there's some really cool redesign proposals that have been put forward in this space um, that do shift around like who pays what and when. And I think that's part of the thought is when we talk about improving the benefit for patients, it's like, well, we have to do that carefully because we can't just make it cheap for patients because we have a spending problem now. But if we do that while also making it so that health plans have incentives to manage costs and negotiate really hard for good prices and manufacturers have incentives not to price too high, like maybe those changes altogether can keep us from spending too much more, but still improve access for patients. That's very interesting. I was going to ask about like if there was a leading restructuring proposal, but maybe that's too complicated to explain without like drawing graphs. But I I was wondering, since there's both a private and a government um, hand in Medicare Part D, especially right now with the pandemic and people losing their jobs. And so most people are losing their ESI. I remember Trump had like proposed like prescription drug gift cards or something. And I was wondering how much leverage the federal government has in restructuring Medicare Part D, because I do know that the pharmaceutical industry has a pretty significant role and sway in that decision. But from my understanding, Medicare is also handled ultimately by the government. Do you see some big changes ahead, especially with the new administration? Yes. So hopefully. Um, The the good news is, is like the, in 2019, we had both 
Democratic leaders and Republican leaders putting forward bills in the House and the Senate that redesigned Medicare Part D. And they were surprisingly similar to one another on their details. So if you looked like at who paid what and when, it really was like both of them were trying to very much simplify the benefit, forget all these different phases, and just shift it around a little bit so that everybody was pretty much like not paying a lot more than they are today, but that everybody was on board with making sure the patient had an out-of-pocket limit. So I think the good news is, is that, you know, these draft proposals came from a Republican and, you know, Democratic groups like independently, and they looked so similar to one another in detail that I think that there is a possibility we would get a Medicare Part D redesign that could get bipartisan support. Now, the tricky part is, is like, what else gets tied to that? So in the bills that were put forward or drafted in 2019, one HR3 actually got voted on by the House and passed, but it was almost completely Democratic pretty progressive on drug price negotiations. And the problem there is like that then becomes a deal breaker for Republican members. So like when you start to tie Medicare redesign with aggressive drug price negotiation, then you start to lose support of people who are less, you know, are more conservative members. And the opposite also happens. If you start to try to compromise too much and you're like, okay, let's just go for Medicare redesign and let's just keep it simple because we agree on that, then you lose the progressive members who really want to get something in there that really starts to rein in drug spending. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of this always a tension of like, what else gets tied into the same bill as to whether or not you think it's going to make, make it all the way through. I'm hopeful uh, President-elect Biden has a similar proposal in his set of plans. And so I, I would love to see that be, you know, a key part of the policy priorities in the near future. Mm-hmm. I, I also have hope because I feel like, like the stimulus checks right now, everybody's just like, anything is better than nothing. So <laughs> Hopefully, though, simplify it so that something will be able to be passed. To to your point there with the stimulus, I've heard people make the comment that, you know, if we have to wait on a stimulus bill or a COVID relief bill, that it's possible that some of these drug pricing reform pieces could get packaged in to that bill. Mm -hmm. So I've heard people kind of make the comment that, you know, there could be really early action on drug prices because some of the things that have been put forward would actually result in savings for the government. So it can be included in the bill as a way to try to help offset some of the spending that's, you know, being put forward in the bill. And I've heard people say that if it doesn't make it in that first round, like of COVID related relief, it's probably then going to have to wait a while. So fingers crossed. (laughs) It could be a very exciting start to the year. That could be. Also, I, I know right now, like hotly debated is like, uh, they're not going to pass any stimulus bills unless there's like direct cash relief. And relating to prescription drugs, I feel like 
maybe sometime, well, again, back to like Trump and the prescription gift cards, it's like giving money to pay for drugs. But if drugs are super expensive, does giving money really help? Or is it better to just lower the price of things for everybody to make it more affordable? And so I guess my question is like, why are prices so expensive, especially for like drugs that aren't new, things that have been around for a really long time and they used to be cheaper and all of a sudden the same product is being marked up so much yet people still need it just as much. And I was wondering what your thoughts were on that. Yeah, I think that some of it is an issue of um, the system that we've set up. So, uh, you know, people talk a lot about insulin prices and how much insulin has increased in price over the years. But this is a very good example of like all the different types of pricing there are in the drug world. So there's like the list price, which is the thing that we can see going up very dramatically for insulin. But then there's the net price, which is kind of what a health plan is paying for insulin. And people have shown that the net price is not really going up over time, but the list price is. Now, there are reasons to be worried about that alone because people who don't have health insurance have to pay the list price. And even people who have health insurance, who have deductibles or who have coinsurance where they pay a percentage instead of a flat fee for their drugs, they have to pay based on the list price. So like if your insulin has gone up from $100 list price to $400 list price, you're getting, you know, your out-of-pocket costs could be going up a lot, even if you have health insurance. And so, you know, that's something that we worry a lot about. The other part of that is like, if your health plan is doing a really good job of negotiating, they can keep the price low, but it's not clear that they're always sharing those savings with you. So this kind of combines another trend we've seen where a lot of people are in this underinsured category. So you pay, you have too high of a deductible. So you have to pay like $1,000 before your health insurance kicks in. And a lot of people on high deductible plans don't have a lot of savings. So it's like, you're on a plan that even when you need to use services, maybe you can't afford to to meet your deductible. So like, I think they're just kind of these combined factors of like prices are going up and we're feeling more of the prices when we go to fill prescriptions than we ever have in the past. I think that's exactly why we saw with something like EpiPen. It's like everybody would fill their EpiPens, you know, as their kids are going to school, they go back to the pharmacy. And if your plan just charged you a copay of let's say $30, you probably never ever even looked at the price on the bill. Like you didn't care what your health insurance plan was paying. You just were like, okay, here's my 30 bucks. But as soon as you got a deductible or you were paying a percentage of the drug price, you started to pay attention to what that amount was on the bill. And I think that's not really a bad thing because I think that sometimes people are really desensitized to how expensive drugs are. And I'll give you one anecdotal experience. This was years ago when I was in um, graduate school making like no money. And my husband needed um, a medication. And we went to the pharmacy and they're like, it was for a um, 
antihistamines for allergy related issues. And they're like, oh, that's going to be $400. And I was like, um, I'm sorry, what? No, I'm sorry, you can't breathe out of your nose. But like, there's no way we're spending $400 on a month's worth of this medication. And the pharmacist was like, oh, hey, look, you can just buy this and this other thing over the counter for $12. And it does the same thing. But like, if we had a copay, like if we had just been charged 10 bucks or 20 bucks, we would have just been like, okay, great. So the prescription, let's go. But that would have been a huge waste of money for our health plan. So I think it's, you know, I guess the part of me that wants people to be thinking more carefully and pushing back a little bit, like, is this the cheapest option? Is this the best option? Like, I think it's good for us to know the prices. But I also think that we've got a lot going on and a lot of people don't have the health literacy that they need to be able to push back and they don't have the resources to find out that they have other alternatives. So I also think we have to keep it pretty simple for people too. Mm -hmm. That's super interesting. I guess, is there a reason why list prices are so much in terms of the development of the drug? If something that's caught something that costs $12 can do the same thing, like, how do you justify, uh, like, even if you don't buy it, just like the fact that they can put that price on a product and put it on the market, how is that allowed? Or like, why is yeah, that? Yeah, I mean, I'll say for this particular product, it was because it's a combination product. And sometimes we see this actually quite a bit where you could buy two cheap drugs, or you could buy this one drug that's like one pill that combines the two. And so you see this like example of these small innovations that companies are making and then packaging and, you know, as a branded drug and getting top dollar for it, because it's like, if you can go in and you can market to a physician and be like, hey, look, this is so much more convenient for your patients. Like, here's all these free samples, get your person on this, like, you know, they can get you to write prescriptions for this product. The whole system is kind of set up in a way where it's like you're just filling thousands of thousands of pill bottles. So it's like you're not going to question every single thing that comes through. And unless a patient is like, hold on, what's this? Why is this happening? Or your health insurance plan is like, no way. Like we're going to charge you full price if you want to try to fill this. Mm -hmm. This is another problem in our system where drugs like the one he was prescribed often will have doctors getting a coupon that they can give to the patient to be like, here, your out-of-pocket cost can be like $10 or $20 with this coupon, which then makes it so that it doesn't really matter what my health plan wants me to pay. Like if my health plan is like, you know, you have to pay 25% and I have a coupon for $10, I can use that. The manufacturer picks up the difference in what I should have paid. And then the health plan is stuck with the big bill. So like you also have these other kind of incentives going on to get people to pick the expensive drug because companies can make it less expensive for them to do that. There are so many problems, really. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I'm just like, wow. Um, I guess to play devil's advocate for the companies, let's just assume that money is in the picture, but it's not the main goal. Is there other incentives that a, for why a company would basically feel like, feel the need to like push innovation that isn't really innovation, like combining two things that already exist into one new package? 
Is there some sure. pressure on the companies to do that? Or is it all, in your opinion, like a, a money strategy? Um, I think that a lot of it is, is money, um, but there are benefits to patients. So it's like, this is the thing that's always tricky is like having to take fewer pills or taking one drug instead of two, like combining a pill. This happens a lot with things like extended release. So you'll have like an older drug that like you have to take a couple of times a day and then a newer version of that that's developed that allows you to take one pill and it just it kind of ends up distributing in the body over the course of the day. So you have a more simple regimen. There are benefits to all of those things for patients. We know like if you have a simpler regimen, you're more likely to be adherent, you get more benefits from that. So like there are definitely good reasons for those types of innovations. I think though, the thing that makes it tricky for, for me is like, well, if you know that, like you could like start off developing a drug in that way, or you could like quickly introduce it after you've got the initial product when you're like, okay, like we got the initial one. Now let's try to see if we can do an extended release. But a lot of times those come out like just at the time the patent's going to run out on the original one. So you're like, the timing starts to make it look a little suspect. Yeah. Where you're like, oh, okay. And then if like that, I think is one reason why, you know, you see health plans really can crack down on that behavior by saying like, we're going to cover this one generously and this one not so generously. And I think that that is something that's totally appropriate. Like as long as clinically you're getting the same benefits, maybe you should have to pay an extra 20 or 30 bucks for a product that's newer, that has these benefits, if you really want those benefits. But like if the other drug does just as good of a job, then it, it seems like you kind of have to have the health plan figuring out like how to maximize savings. Because the thing that I think people forget is like, it's not like the health plan is ever eating the cost. Like the health plan is never, ever going to be like, oh, okay, well, we spent too much. So I guess that just comes out of our bottom line. No, they raise your premium. So like your costs go up in the next plan year. And so like every time we have, we were like, well, we really think that, you know, combined products and extended release, we should just prioritize all those things. It's like, if we do that, then we just have to be willing to accept a much higher premium because somebody's going to pay for it. And that somebody is like all the people on the health plan. Yeah. And I mean, they're never I think people tend to forget that. <laughs> yeah. They just yeah. raise the price and they don't explain why. Right. So speaking yeah. of health plans, um, like for like the regular person choosing a health plan is overwhelming. You don't know which one to choose. And the Affordable Care Act is also, I think, to the general person, pretty confusing. There was a big hearing about the ACA early November. So I just wanted to hear what your thoughts were on the hearing and as well as the ACA in general, both before and after the hearing and um, what improvements, I mean, there are a lot of improvements, but what improvements do you see would be the most tangible to make as soon as possible, I guess? Yeah, I'll say like so far from what I've heard, like, you know, it sounds like the ACA will be upheld. So just going on that kind of like, it's going to still hold up the way that it is. You know, I think there are lots of things that it did well and a lot that it 
did not do as well as it could have. And, and part of that is like the compromise that is creating health policy. So it's like, sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. In the case of the Affordable Care Act, and, and especially in things like the health plan exchange, where a lot of your colleagues will probably need to be buying insurance in the coming years. It's like, you, when you get on an exchange plan, if you have income that's over 400% of the federal poverty level, you don't get any subsidies to help lower your cost for the premium. What that kind of means is like, you actually have to pay a lot of money for pretty suboptimal health insurance coverage. So like the, a lot of the benefits require you to pay a high deductible, which means that you basically are paying mostly out of pocket for your care if you're kind of a younger, healthier person. And if you're making a good income, then you're paying like a pretty high premium for that plan. So it's like, it kind of feels really, uh, really bad. Like if you, if you basically are making a good income and then you, you have to spend a huge chunk of it on health insurance that you don't really hopefully have to use, it kind of stinks. I'll say one of the things that I'm, one of the things that it did very well and absolutely like pre-existing conditions covered like before that if you had a pre-existing condition that you needed to buy health insurance, you would not be allowed to. Like you could be either completely priced out, like they, they offered you some crazy price that you would not be able to pay, or they just deny you flat out. Like, no, sorry, we don't want to even sell you health insurance. So like, that's a huge benefit. And the out-of-pocket maximum that includes all of your drug spending and everything else is like another huge benefit. So it's like, as much as I think the plans aren't necessarily affordable for everyone right now. It's like, at least if you had something catastrophic happen to you, you have a limit on how much you have to pay. That is huge, huge financial protection. So I'll say all those things are good. Now, if Biden got to do everything he put forward in his plan, we'd be in some really good shape when it came to the exchange plans and also in improving coverage. So. One thing that I was reading last week was um, it was basically a survey of people who are currently uninsured in the U.S. And this is back, I think, pre-pandemic where they're asking people. And there were a lot of people. And the two main reasons people said they did not have health insurance were they couldn't afford it. It wasn't affordable to them. Which 74% of people were like, that's why I don't have health insurance today. So that's a big problem. And then like another 20 something percent said, I'm not allowed to buy it. And so Biden's plans kind of go after those two components. One is getting people who are priced out today, like letting them have, you know, some limit on how much they would have to pay. So his plan kind of sets a percentage of your income that you would have to pay like that as a maximum of how much you have to pay for a health plan on the exchange. So that would like dramatically improve affordability for people who don't currently get subsidies. The other is like expanding access to health insurance and letting people buy it and giving people subsidies who are currently like not, not eligible. The biggest group is people in states that did not expand Medicaid. So this was like, the biggest downer of the ACA is like this 
low income group of people that were specified as they would be eligible for Medicaid has for the last like forever been stuck in this what we call a coverage gap where they are below like they are basically in a very low income category, but they don't get any help with their insurance premium. So they legitimately cannot afford to buy health insurance on the exchange because the policies were set up in a way that's like assumed every state would expand Medicaid. Of course, we all know that that did not happen. And Biden has kind of put forward that he would like to actually have a $0 premium coverage plan and auto enroll all of those people who are currently in the Medicaid coverage gap in states that did not expand Medicaid like into the exchange. So like that alone would be huge. He would also like try to specifically do outreach to DACA recipients um, and to people who are legally present in the U.S. to remove waiting periods for getting health insurance and allow them to get health insurance through the exchange. And I think even one version of the plan included people who were not documented, but allowing them to purchase health insurance, not getting subsidies, but at least being able to buy health insurance from the exchange so everybody has at least some coverage options. Mm -hmm. So like that was long winded, but huge amount of changes like that are potential, but this again is like, do you think that's feasible? That sounds kind of amazing. Uh, But I know like Medicaid is managed at the state level with that, would that cause problems between like state and national level governments in terms of politics? So I think as long as the federal government, so he would have to have congressional action, I think, to get any of these big changes through. It's like the eligibility and the subsidies for the exchange. I believe he he needs Congress to do many of the things that he has proposed. That said, like it does seem like he would be able, under the assumption that these other changes were on the table, that you could say, okay, well, we're just going to extend the subsidies for people who are on the exchange. Now, the tricky part is, is like, you're giving a benefit to states that did not expand Medicaid, but he's also acknowledged that he would give the same deal to states that did expand Medicaid. So trying to like level the playing field again, you don't want to penalize states that have been more progressive at getting people covered. But at the same time, it's like the people who are stuck in the Medicaid coverage gap, it's just like, it's absolutely unbelievable that they've been stuck with no affordable options for so long. I mean, this has like gone on for a long time now since the ACA went into effect. And it's really unfair. It's like, if you are wealthier than I am, but I am in the Medicaid coverage gap, like you could have basically free health insurance on the exchange and I can't, I'd have to pay like hundreds or maybe even a thousand dollars a month to get my health insurance it's just totally unfair so yeah hopefully that gets fixed that's that's one of the when you look at kind of all the policies this is one of the ones where you're like this is just this was an accident like nobody intended for this group of people to be harmed by the policy but they are and it's a shame it has not been fixed yeah I think it also definitely singles out a specific demographic Um, I don't know much about Medicaid in other states, but I know in Tennessee, it's usually like 
you're in your 30s to 50s range, single male, no children. So like those are the people Mm -hmm. that tend to have this problem where they can't access anything because of insurance. And that really sucks. I I feel like it might prompt people to do crazy things in their life. Like, oh, well, if I have a kid, then I can somehow get Medicaid as like a parent, relative, caretaker or something. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the the states vary in who's eligible. And the other thing too, though, is, is like, you know, you're only eligible for a certain window of time. Like I know there's been some conversations I've seen recently about trying to extend Medicaid for women who have given birth. So like you're eligible as a pregnant woman and then a small amount of time postpartum, but then you're kicked yeah. off. So it's like, well, what if you're sick? Like, do you just have to chronically be pregnant in order to like have healthcare access? Like, that doesn't seem like the thing that we want to be doing to people. Um, yeah. And of course, like, you know, I have colleagues who've studied postnatal care, like, and, you know, when women lose coverage, but they actually have health related issues that need to be addressed after having a baby. It's just like, this is totally nuts. Like we just have to fix these things. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. It's very punitive in a weird way. From like a, how do, how much to pay from the consumer perspective, again, looking from the other way around, like looking at just drug costs in itself, is there anything that Biden can do to lower the prices or like prompt price negotiations with the uh, private mm-hmm. sphere? just so that in order to get yeah. to the root of the problem, if everything just costs less, it would be more accessible to people. Yeah, so he's also put forward proposals to do drug price negotiation, um, not just for Medicare, but for all public payers. So that would include if he got the public option, which would allow people to buy into Medicare earlier and expanding the exchange plans. It's like with all of that, you know, it would be pretty good bargaining power, one would think. And he's talked about applying this kind of like the Trump favored nations uh, drug pricing, where it's like taking the price paid by a set of other countries that have similar economies to ours and using that as the price that we want to pay or like paying 120% of that price, for example. So Biden's plan includes some of those components. He also has a component about like trying to set prices for very expensive drugs. So for things like cancer treatments that are coming out to the market, doing independent evaluations of the cost of those drugs and trying to recommend a price that would be reasonable based on like what other options there are for that disease. So there are a couple of like really strong ideas for for moving forward on negotiations. My impression is is that it follows quite closely to the bill that the House put forward and passed um, in 2019, H.R. 3, that most of his drug pricing related plans kind of look like that. That one's going to be tricky. You know, I keep hearing mixed things about, you know, President Trump two or three weeks ago, maybe longer now, put out um, the final rule for the favored nations executive order that he put forward. And so the idea is, is that they're going to do a mandatory payment demonstration project where they pay less for drugs that are being used in part B 
so physician-administered drugs in Medicare. No idea how that would work. It's supposed to go into effect like 2021, so like almost immediately, which is, at least that's the last thing I saw in it. It may be a little bit later. But there are already lawsuits about it. So it's like, um, I was going to say, how? Like, can, can the federal government step in on like, like in my mind, you can negotiate if both sides are like on the same team kind of, or with the same goal in mind. But yeah. from my understanding, the pharma industry, this is going against what they want. So how can you force them to agree to a certain negotiation or to set a certain price cap? Yeah, they would not, they are not interested in this going <laughs> forward. Um, they have lo lobbied uh, to avoid this. They have already filed a couple of lawsuits about the way that this final rule was kind of finalized, like there was just some weird rulemaking process, like there wasn't an opportunity for people to respond to it, mm. all kinds of weird stuff. So um, they have put out, put forward lawsuits. I don't think that there's any like, I don't think there's a version of this that the pharmaceutical industry would be excited to sign on to. Like, mm -hmm. I so I don't think you're necessarily ever going to get compromised from the industry on drug price negotiations. So that said, I think that there are things that, you know, the government could decide they're just going to go down this particular path. Now, the you know, I've seen people a couple people have said that one way of thinking about this drug price negotiation is thinking about something like reference pricing that Germany uses, which my understanding is, is that, you know, they actually will do a little bit of um, having an arbiter. So like we decide, like, you know, the government decides what a fair price would be. The company decides what a fair price would be. They submit like what they think this would be to the arbiter and that person decides like which, which one wins. So it's, it's kind of like you're in, if you can't come to an agreement, like you have to let an independent party decide. And so then you're kind of encouraged to get either to an agreement amongst yourselves so that you don't have an independent group decide for you or to just not be too extreme. Because if you show up and you're asking for something really outlandish, that, and then you know the government's asking for something that's more moderate, like chances are like the arbiter might pick the government. So then you like really are mad. Yeah. <laughs> you, so like, there are lots of ways people think about doing this. Mm. I personally am very concerned that like, just implementing an international pricing index, like that's not easy. We already have problems knowing what other countries pay for drugs. And in effect, this would potentially cause their prices to go up. So they'd have a lot of incentives to not tell us what they pay or not tell us what they really pay. You know, like they could be like, oh, I pay this before discounts and rebates. You know, like they could show us like a fake price and we wouldn't know what they were actually getting. So I think it's just complicated. I'm not sure that we're going to be able to get something like that implemented. Yeah. And, you know, like the, the honest truth is we should be doing a lot of these evaluations ourselves. Like, why not actually be evaluating products to decide what we think we should pay for them?
mm-hmm. you know, rather than using what other countries pay as a benchmark. So if we were to do value-based pricing by ourselves, how would that look? And who would be the ones in the U.S. doing that? It would look complicated. I guess the hard part is, is like, we have so many drugs. So you'd have to think about like, do you separate out older drugs and do this moving forward? Do you do this only for a subset of drugs? Biden's plan is for a subset. It's for those very expensive drugs that are coming out to the market in the future. So with that, like you could basically do probably like a government private partnership type of arrangement where you had independent entities doing the cost effectiveness evaluations. Like there are standard methods for doing these. Um, ICER is the group in the US that does kind of this independent evaluation work today. So something that looks like that with a public process, you know, kind of independent groups involved in making all the decisions that don't have financial conflicts with any, you know, and, and aren't necessarily um, even necessarily engaged in that clinical space. Like they're there to judge the evidence of benefit and harm and cost and relative cost effectiveness. So like you can then have that process go on where you have like an independent group saying, okay, well, based on the evidence presented, the the difference in cost and the difference in quality of, you know, of life and, and length of life is like, you can kind of do the math and get to a recommended price. I say ICER does this, they make all of their deliberations public, all of their reports, all the feedback they get. And you can kind of see through their reports that they walk through and they say like, well, if you want to spend $150,000 per quality adjusted life year, the recommended price would be this dollar amount. So you can kind of get, get to a sense of like, how we might get to a point of being able to pick like the range of prices that would be acceptable for a new treatment. It's actually kind of fun when you look into the details. Oh, okay. This is really interesting. Like, and it does make sense. It's like, you're basing it on like the same disease area. You're using clinical trials that were the basis for FDA approval. So like it's data that the companies have generated to convince the government that we want to make this drug available. So it's just kind of taking those inputs and saying, okay, well, here's what you compared against. Here's what that costs. Here's how much that improves your life. Here's how much the new drug improves your life. And let's just do the math and like, and then come up with what the price should be. Mm-hmm. So I, I always find it to be kind of shockingly straightforward. <laughs> <laughs> I feel but like politically, politically like, fraught. Yeah. I feel like it would also be kind of like a cat and mouse game because if you're the company, because they're not targeting all the drugs, you're just going to make sure that they don't target your drug. So maybe you lower the price a little bit just so you're out of the extreme range, but then it's still expensive. But then maybe mm-hmm. if they do that across the board, the standards have to change again about what is extreme. So it sounds like a lot of yeah. going so on. You're, no, you're exactly right. And actually that same group, ICER, has a report that they put together every year on unsupported price increases. So they actually go through the process of figuring out what companies have raised their price the most and had the largest impact on health spending in the U.S. And then they go through and do a review to say, like, did anything 
change about what we know about this drug that would support having increased its price so much from what it was before. And then kind of summarizes like, who are the companies that have had the largest unsupported price increases in each calendar year? And that's another way that you could think about like attempting to deal with drug prices is not just like what price is set at the beginning, but like limiting price increases. Mm -hmm. That is the one other policy change that um, was in those bipartisan, you know, separate, but still like one led by Republicans, one led by Democrats. Both bills from 2019 included a limit on price increases saying that like you can't raise your price faster than inflation. And if you do, you have to pay that money back to the Medicare program. And we have those same limits in Medicaid today. And that is a huge amount of savings for Medicaid programs. So it's kind of weird that we don't have that kind of limit in Medicare, since like the government pays for so much of Medicare. Um, but that's another piece that was had was in both drug pricing proposals in the House and the Senate, and also as part of Biden's proposal was like, let's just start to limit price increases to inflation. So it doesn't get to the root of the problem, because if you let companies just price higher when they come onto the market, then you haven't really solved any problems. But at least it starts to limit price growth. Um, in some ways. So I think if you couple that with like trying to negotiate better starting prices, then you're really starting to make a dent in spending. Mm. All of this is very hard though. <laughs> Companies are not that excited about uh, yeah, reducing sure. their revenues. Wow. I've, I've learned a lot. <laughs> um, I guess my last <laughs> question, just based on all of this, is that um, there are some people who have argued that we should just not have like price drugs at all, like things should just be available to people because the goal of drugs and innovation is to cure people. And it, if affordability is the number one barrier, then maybe we should just make it accessible to all. So I guess I wanted to know what were your thoughts on that opinion? And if you believe that there is like real value in value-based pricing and doing all of these or attempting to do these negotiations about pricing? Um, so I, I do love the concept of that. Like, and I, I do think the other thing um, that we sometimes forget is that not all drugs are that useful. And even really expensive drugs we have, like some of them are not really useful. And it stinks because you, you know that some company and a lot of people put in a ton of hard work to try to get a drug to the market. But I do think that if we were better at saying like no to things and paying for things that really have value, we could do a better job of making sure that things that work can get to everyone. But the problem is, is like, you know, we're just like, we want everything. We want to have access to the extended release and the combination products and everything. And so like there's this sense that if we limit access to those things, then we're doing harm when in fact we're like, because we won't limit access to some things, then we have to limit access to some people. And that's like the thing that is really frustrating. It's like, you know, someone who's very wealthy can probably purchase whatever drugs they want because 
when you're wealthy, you tend to have better health insurance. So it's like this kind of really messed up system where it's like for people who are, you know, lower middle class, maybe they're stuck in this situation where they can't afford any of the drugs that they need because their health insurance is not very generous because they can't afford a really good policy or they don't make enough money to have a generous policy as part of their job. So, yeah, I think we have to get really serious about paying for things that have value and stop paying for things that don't have value. And that's going to really suck for some companies like for a little while because for a long time and you know researchers have kind of shown this is a little bit related to Medicare Part D. It's like once we had Medicare Part D and now all these seniors have a source of health insurance coverage for drugs, we saw a ton of drugs being developed and brought to the market for older adults and a ton of drugs that we call like me too drugs, which are like just other treatment options in a class. But like if we said to the market, if we said, okay, well, we'll pay you if you come out with like a really new thing that dramatically improves outcomes for someone. Like more companies would put their money and time into developing that. But instead we're kind of like, well, you know, like we'll just pay you. Like you can name your price. You know, if you have a lot of competitors, you can't name your prices easily because there's too many competitors and there's actual negotiation. But for a lot of drugs, it's like, especially in cancer, like it's unfortunate because it's like an area where there's so much need. But we have so many drugs that have like really terrible evidence base. Like they're not even testing against other drugs. They're just like, oh, this seems to do okay. Like you spend your life by a few weeks, $15,000 a fill. You're like, I mean, that's, that's a lot. That's, that's part of the reason we just can't have generous coverage. But it makes me really mad because it's like, you know, we have life saving cancer drugs that Medicare beneficiaries cannot afford because they have the same coverage as a drug that extends your life by a few days Mm -hmm. or that doesn't extend your life and causes toxicity. Like, we legitimately have a broken system because we won't make those choices. So we have to get comfortable with making hard choices, I think. Yeah. And I think especially, I mean, it's always been a problem in the U.S., but especially now, I feel like there's more pressure in all avenues for the government to make some big changes, especially along healthcare right now. Yeah. You know, I think that one of the things that strikes me as a really tricky space is, you know, for years we've seen like that both Democrats and Republicans, like everyday Americans, like everybody's like drug prices are a problem. We need to fix it. Like we need a lower spending on drugs. We need to lower drug prices. And I think that we have this kind of tricky scenario though, right now with COVID where we have such huge innovation. We have like vaccines that have been developed and look like they work really well in a very short amount of time. And so you've got this kind of like, will the political will be there to do anything about drug prices if we can get this vaccine like, and get the vaccine like to all of the Americans without breaking the bank? I think it will be super interesting to see how pricing for vaccines 
this vaccine in particular evolves, because I think the pharmaceutical industry has like this opportunity to be the hero of the story, right? Like they have brought innovation and saved us from a pandemic. Awesome. But like, we only have a certain amount of doses that we've prepaid for. So like, what happens with the next batch of doses and how much we'll have to pay when we are like dealing with global demand. So like they also have this potential to like basically make everyone mad at them if they price gouge us on vaccines. So I'm like, I think the next few months is going to be super informative for like how the public feels about the pharmaceutical industry and how politicians feel about the pharmaceutical industry. But I think we also have to recognize they've they've really delivered on innovation. So if we want value-based prices, let's put our money where our mouth is and pay for that vaccine and start to like reward innovation, but at the same time, like stop paying for things that don't really work. Mm-hmm. Easier said than done, probably. Yeah, it sounds <laughs> difficult. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Um, we're reaching the hour limit. I just want to say I really hope that uh, the Biden administration will consult people like you um, about drug pricing because they definitely will need some help, I'm sure. And really, I appreciate your time and everything that you shared. Absolutely. Yeah, it was so great to talk with you and I look forward to future conversations.